Our sermon text is Daniel 1, verses 1 through 21, and you can find that on page 429 of your Bibles. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And with some of the vessels of the house of God, he brought them out, he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belthashazar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion inside of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the king of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, good morning again. It's uh, really good to be here. We are continuing our study of Daniel this morning. And last week, if you recall, we looked at just the first couple of verses of this same chapter, Daniel chapter 1. And uh, we started to look at how that told the story of God's sovereignty, his control over history, and specifically his control over history during this time of exile, the time that the original audience of this book, the first readers of this book, would have lived through when the nation of Babylon came and conquered Jerusalem, when they burned the city to the ground, when they destroyed the temple of God, and they took all the able-bodied people hundreds of miles away to live in this enemy country. During that time, 
during the exile, Psalm 137 was written. The exiles wrote this song that they sang, and here's how it goes. It says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, which is Jerusalem. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now, Scripture tells us that spiritually, we are all in the position of exiles. That this is not our true home. This world is not our true home. And no matter how comfortable we try to make it, we are always haunted by the sense that we don't belong here. The home that we were made for is the home with God, the home that lasts for all of eternity. And so last week we talked about how God is in control of history. And so when you know that, when you realize he's sovereign, you can answer the question, why? We can know what we're doing here and why we're here. But it doesn't deal with the question of how. How can we live here? How should we behave in this world? How should we live as God's people in a world that doesn't share his values? What those original exiles saying, how can we sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? That's the question I want us to look at this morning. That's the question I hope that we can try to answer, how? How do we live faithfully in this world? So to understand that, what I want us to do with this text is I want us to pick it apart and see three things. I want us to see first the pressures of this world, the pressures that we face in this world, and then secondly, I want us to see how we struggle to respond well to those pressures. And then finally, I want us to see the way our struggle can become a song. So the pressures we face in this world, the struggle to respond well to them, and then the way our struggle can become a song. Now, it's hard for me to overstate just how challenging life would have been for Daniel and his friends in this story. The first seven verses, they tell us that these guys were taken to Babylon. And if you have ever picked up a Bible before, you may realize that, that from the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation, Genesis, uh, Babylon represents the worst place. Babylon represents a civilization that is built on selfishness, that is built on pride, that is built on violence. Instead of being in the city of God, which is what Jerusalem was supposed to be, they have been taken into the ultimate city of man. This was the place that, that parents told their children about. It was, it was the, the, the terrible place that filled their nightmares. This was the hardest place that there could possibly be to be obedient to, to follow God. And why were they there? I mean, why, why were the exiles in Babylon in the first place? Well, if you look at history, you find out that this was kind of Babylon's plan. This was their strategy. Whenever they conquered some enemy land, instead of just wiping out the people, what they would do is they would take the best people, the healthiest people, the smartest people, and they would bring them back to their city. 
they would immerse them in Babylonian culture and they would put them in a prosperous town. The, the reason they did that was because they were trying not just to conquer them, not just to get a victory over the nation of Israel, but they wanted to erase them. They wanted these people to come into their city and to lose their identity. And they hoped that as, as years went by, as people got accustomed to the place they lived, slowly they would lose their heritage. They would forget their values. Their distinctiveness would be eradicated. But the pressures that these guys faced, the pressures that Daniel and his friends had to deal with in Babylon are actually uh, not that different from the ones we face every day. They, they have a lot in common from the pressures that we encounter on a regular basis from the culture that's around us. Now, we're, of course, we don't, we're not captives, right? We don't find ourselves stuck living in a king's court somewhere. But I think it's fair to say that we also live in a culture that demands our allegiance. We also live in a world that pressures us to assimilate, to adopt its values, to lose any distinction that we might have as God's people. And before I go any further with that, I just want to make sure I'm being clear here. Because I don't want you to hear me saying, Boston is Babylon. I'm not trying to say that, right? I looked at a lot of churches that have studied the book of Daniel, and it seems like sometimes their pastors can get caught up in this idea of thinking the town they live in is the bad place, right? Um, that's certainly a narrative we hear a lot, right? It's, an, it's the narrative of the suburban church, that the city is the bad place that you go, and you lose your faith, and you lose your identity, and you lose your culture. Christians should stay away. You know, I, I don't think that's the case. Um, a few weeks ago, there were some pastors who were up here from, from one of the southern states, and they were taking pictures and posting them on Facebook. And it was like every picture was about how crazy and terrible the values are of the people in Boston. And, and the insinuation was, you know, somehow it's much holier in the south, right? Things are much better down there. But that's not what's happening. That's not what I'm trying to say. I don't want to, to contrast uh, the values of Boston versus the values of some other better place that exists somewhere. No, this is about the values of God's kingdom versus the world's kingdom. This is about what Augustine calls the city of God versus the city of man. And whenever we're in the city of man, which is where we all live, we will always face some of these pressures. And there's two main things that I want to uh, highlight from our text today. Two main pressures that we often encounter here. And the first is the pressure of comfort. Verse 5, it says that uh, when Daniel and his friends got to the king's court, here's what they did. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So notice that these men weren't put in the dungeon, right? They weren't put in the dungeon and chained up and fed rats or something. But instead, they were given a, a full ride to Babylon University, right? They, they, were put, they were treated like royalty. 
And they're not, they weren't put on the regular kids' meal plan either, right? They were, they were on this, this, they were on the same food that the king ate. They were faced every day with, with, with filet mignon and, and red wine, or whatever Babylonians ate back then, right? They were, they were living the high life. Now, if you turn your radio on and you start listening to some conservative talk radio or, or maybe start watching cable news, you're going to hear some stories about this culture war that's happening. And they'll highlight some, some instances of oppression that some Christian somewhere is, is supposedly facing. And they're, they're showing these extreme scenarios to kind of portray that you know, Christians are really being attacked in our culture. But that's not really how it is, right? Culture doesn't waterboard us into conformity. That's, that's not the strategy. Instead, it does stuff like this. It offers us comfort. It offers us the path of least resistance. You know, it says if you don't cause a fuss, you won't have any problems. No one's going to think you're strange. You, you'll fit in. If you can just act like everybody else, people are going to like you. And for a lot of us, that's all it takes. We can be so easily crushed, can't we? By the fear of standing out. By the fear of being passed over for a promotion. Or not fitting in with the right crowd of people. By the fear that that guy or that girl's not going to like us if we don't do the things they want us to do. There's this choice that we could be bold or we can be comfortable. So that's the first pressure we face. We also face another pressure, though. We face the, the pressure of identity. In verse 7, it says that the chief of the eunuchs gives them new names. Daniel, he calls Belshazzar. Hananiah, he calls Shadrach. Mishael, he calls Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now, you may realize that, that back in biblical times, names were more than just names. right? We try to give our kids names that are meaningful today, but it's not the same. Back then, naming someone was really a declaration of who they were and what they were about. It, was, uh, it said something about their identity. And that was definitely the case with these people. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael means who is God? And Azariah, it means Yahweh has helped. And when these guys showed up in this new city, one of the first things they did was to take, replace those names with new names. Names that testified instead to pagan gods like Nebo and Marduk and Bel. Now, like I said, we don't really do names that way anymore. Our culture, it wouldn't, you know, if somebody changed your name, it probably wouldn't have some tremendous effect on your sense of, of self. I mean, it happens occasionally, I guess, like Ron Artest. I know he changed his name, right, to, to Meta World Peace. And there was a guy... You remember that football player who changed his name to He Hate Me? Anybody remember that? It was, I think it was the XFL, which is like 20 years ago now. Um, 
It happens, right? We, we know that names are kind of important, but the world names us in a different way now. The world's not going to rename you after Marduk or Bell or Nebo, but instead the world's going to rename us after our new gods. It's going to name you after the job that you have. It's going to define you by how much power you have in this society. It's going to name you by your tax bracket, by how much money you've got, whether you're rich or you're poor. It's going to define you by your sexual preferences. It's going to define you by your culture. It's going to define you by your class. There's a baseball documentary by Ken Burns. It, uh, I used to have it on VHS. <laughs> and uh, it has nine episodes that go through the different decades of the history of baseball. But it's actually really interesting, especially the episodes that talk about the, the civil rights era. And in one of those tapes, there's an interview uh, with a guy named Kurt Flood, who was an outfielder. He was also one of the first men to integrate baseball after Jackie Robinson. And during his interview, he tells the story of uh, playing baseball when many of the Jim Crow era laws were still in place. And they had a doubleheader, and they had to wash their uniforms between the games. But because he was black, they wouldn't let him wash his clothes with the other white players' clothes. And so they took those clothes across town to, the, to a separate laundromat. And he was forced to sit there and wait naked for hours while he waited for his clothes to come back. And he tells the camera, looking into it, you know, it's, it's a really powerful count. But he said, as he sat there, the other players on the team called him every name under the sun except a child of God. The world will define us by any name it likes. But Scripture tells us something else about our identity. Isaiah 43 says that our identity is, is something different entirely. Our identity is that He has redeemed us, He has called us by name, and we belong to Him. He says, you are mine. The things that Daniel and his friends face, they're, they're different from the things that we face. But the pressures are still very similar. The world still offers us comfort. The world still offers us a new name. But how are we going to respond? Well, it's a struggle. It's a struggle to respond well to this stuff. Daniel and Hananiah... Mishael, Azariah, they were in uncharted territory here. Israel, where they came from, that was a nation that was literally governed by God's laws. But Babylon, of course, was not. For these men, they had no examples to follow of what it meant to live an obedient life in this new situation. Back in Babylon, it was as simple as, as keeping the rules. It was very black and white. Here's the things you need to do to be obedient to God. But now they find themselves in this new situation where obedience to God meant following Him in a lot of gray areas. And for that reason, Daniel and his friends, they serve as a, a great example for us. They are a great example for how we as the church and we as Christians today should interact with our culture. Because honestly, uh, this has been a big struggle for us. 
Throughout history, the church has made some mistakes in the way that it has responded to the world around it. On one hand, oftentimes, Christians have responded to the world with this, with, where the answer is we need to flee. We need to run away from culture. We need to hide ourselves from it. We need to, everybody get together, huddle up, build our own separate culture away from the world where we only read our own books and listen to our own music and watch our own movies and, and here we are just off to the side. Ever been in a community like that? I went to a mission trip when I was in high school and I came with my big, you know, CD folder for my Walkman. And as soon as I got there, they're like, well, you're going to have to throw away all your CDs. It's like, throw away my CDs? What are you talking about? Like, this took me a long time to get all these. You, can't, you cannot have my Bone Thugs and Harmony CD. This is mine. <laughs> There's this idea that we need to withdraw, right? There's this theology that tells us that the best, that any contact with the world is going to taint you. And so instead, we, we build a church, and we put a big barbed wire fence around it, and we just hang out with each other and wait for Jesus to come back. Fleeing is not helpful, but another equally unhelpful approach is, is the idea that we need to fight. There is a certain group of Christians that, that when they get into a position of power, they have believed the solution to our problem is to legislate Christianity into existence, right? I think one of the most destructive things that's happened to the church in the last hundred years was when Christians tried to make the world live by the Christian rules without knowing a Christian God. And I know that, honestly, our moral policing has hurt a lot of people. Maybe that's somebody in this room today. Maybe you're one of those people who has been hurt by that approach. And if, if you are, I just want to say, I'm, I'm sorry. That's not what we're called to do. Right? Daniel rises to power at the end of this story, but his response isn't to then go institute the laws of Jerusalem over Babylon. He knew that Babylon's problems was not that it needed to follow Jerusalem's laws, but they needed to serve Jerusalem's God. So sometimes the church has fled. Sometimes the church has fought. But these guys don't do either. Instead, we see that they choose to engage. Right? They choose to engage with the society even while holding on to their convictions. They choose to participate in the culture without succumbing to it. It tells us, that they learned the wisdom of the Babylonians. Now, this is kind of an aside, but I think it's worth mentioning. Notice that they, they, they talk about it being the wisdom of the Babylonians and that these guys learned it. They didn't simply learn it either. They, it says they excelled in it, right? They mastered it. It's worth mentioning that this isn't pointed out as a sinful act, that it, there's nothing inherently wrong with them learning the history and the culture of this foreign world. And as Christians, we, we should probably pay attention to that. That it might be helpful for some of us to engage with the culture around us, 
to study and find out what other people think and, and learn and, and know. These young men, they're able to thrive in this Babylonian educational system without being indoctrinated by it. They're able to be in the schools without losing their souls. Now, parents, I, I don't think this really has anything to do with public schools. <laughs> I don't think this is an accurate place for us to go and, and decide whether or not you should homeschool or whether you should enroll your kid in the local elementary school. But I do think it has a lesson for us. And not just for parents, but for all the adults in this church. For any one of us who engages with the children that are, are with us in this community. It says we, ha- we need to model our values and teach our kids about their faith. We need to prepare them to engage with the society around them. Right? These guys had a foundation that was built before they got to Babylon, didn't they? If our kids aren't hearing the gospel from our lips, if, our, if the children in this church aren't seeing you live out your faith, where are they going to see it? If you don't tell them about Jesus, who's going to? We need to help our kids build a foundation. We need to help our kids be prepared for the day when people tell them something different. When the day when people challenge their faith, which will happen. But these guys had a firm foundation. They were able to thrive in the midst of this system. Now, we also see, though, they accepted the teaching, right? They learned what the system had to offer them. They accepted the teaching, but they rejected what? They rejected this food, didn't they? It tells us that that when they attempted to feed these guys the king's rations, Daniel works out this plan where they can they only need to take where they could only eat vegetables, where they could refrain from eating these specific foods. Why did they do that? If you read through different books, there's a lot of theories. Uh, some people think maybe Daniel didn't want to take the food because it was against the ceremonial laws. But then other people will tell you that doesn't explain it entirely because wine would have been fine to drink. And then some people say, well, maybe it's because this food was sacrificed to idols, so he didn't want to taint himself that way. But if that was true, it was probably true of the vegetables and the grains as well. So what's going on here? Well, probably the best explanation is that they were were thinking about what eating the king's food meant. They were thinking about the significance of a meal in their culture. And they wanted to avoid identifying themselves with with fellowship with the king. They wanted to to remain distinct culturally. They wanted to, to be a people that stood apart and said, we don't depend upon our king for our nourishment, but we depend upon God. We don't look to man for our welfare, but we look to God. And in this moment, we see that that Daniel and the rest of the guys, they had this set of convictions that they were unwilling to compromise. And it's really important that that this happens now. 
it's significant that they have this challenge at the very beginning of this book because this is going to set the foundation. This is going to pave the way for a lot of things that are coming. They don't know it yet. But this is what is, is building the, the basis for a lot of the, the trials that they're going to face in the future. And those are going to be trials where it's not just the choice between obedience and compromise, but it's going to be a choice between obedience and death sometimes. These guys have much bigger trials ahead. And this first one is preparing the way. It's setting the foundation for their future. So what about you? Especially those of you here who have you know, career plans and, and big ideas for your future. I think a lot of times there is this thinking that it might be okay every now and then to cut some corners, to take a shortcut, to do something that might not be totally, totally correct, but, but maybe, you know, just a little bit gray, to take some of those shortcuts to success, because then once we get there, that'll be a great platform for us. You know, once we make it, that's when we can start declaring our faithfulness to God. That's when we can be Christians in the workplace. But you can't do that. You can't wait until you get all the things you want before you're going to start listening to what Jesus wants for your life. So do you have a sense of conviction? Where you are right now, do you have something that you're unwilling to compromise? Have you built a foundation in your life? Are you reading the Word of God? Are you praying? Are you living in community with other people now? Are you building a foundation so that you're going to know how to engage with society? So that you're going to know what obedience means instead of compromise. And how does it end up? Do you, did you see at the end of the story? It tells us that by the end of this chapter, these guys, they receive tremendous favor with the king. Verse 17, it tells us, As for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel in understanding all visions and dreams. And then it goes on, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. It says at the end of this time, because they chose not to compromise their values, because they, they stood firm and were faithful to God, these guys thrive. And so does the city. Babylon thrives as well because of them. I mean, that just shows us right there that, that faithfulness to God and, and excellence in work are not some kind of mutually exclusive things. Now, the Bible tells us plenty of times being successful has a lot of traps. Jesus says, you know, what good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? But success is not a sin. Doing well, is there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. In fact, on the contrary, as God's people, we are called to use our skills for the benefit of the world around us. 
As God's people, we are called to, to add beauty to this community. We're called to, to, to thrive in the areas where he's gifted us. You know, it's interesting. What Daniel does here is exactly what God tells the rest of the exiles to do 20 years later. 20 years after this moment, God, through Jeremiah, speaks to these exiles who are in their holy huddle, living beside a river, and he tells them that they should stop doing that, and then instead they should seek the peace of the city. They should pray for its welfare, because in its welfare, they will find their welfare. It's what Jesus says, right? We read it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says we are called to be the, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That means as Christians, we should be living lives of faith in this world. We need to be present. We need to represent Christ in the law firms and in the hospitals, in the schools, and in the small businesses. We need to be seen. We need to be seen living lives of faithfulness in, in the parks and the playgrounds and the, the PTA meetings. And you know what? Sometimes even in the club. Now, that's a struggle. That is a struggle for anybody. It's a struggle to know how to navigate the world. There are so many gray areas. But we need to see in this story that, that these men are not called to flee, and they're not called to fight. But, but just like us, they're called to engage. They're called to live faithful lives of obedience in the city for the glory and the favor of God. So the last thing I want to talk about here then is, this is a struggle. But what's going to turn that struggle into a song? See, Daniel, these guys, they, they are a, a great example for us. I mean, when you read this story, you see that time after time, they succeed. They show us how we should live in a community without compromising our values, without scorning our community, without appearing as self-righteous, right? They do this in a way that's extremely gracious, that's gentle towards the people around them, and yet at the same time, it's resolute, and it's strong before God. And if you read this book and you start to pick this story apart, you realize, man, we would all be well-served to be a lot more like Daniel. We would all be better off if we were a lot more like these young men. But we aren't. The reality is that when most of us look at our lives, we find that we aren't a lot like Daniel. We're not a lot like his, his three friends, but instead we are a lot more like those nameless multitudes that you've never heard of. Those other people who came along during the exile, who changed their names, who ate the king's food, who were forgotten to history. The truth is, if we had been in this story, if we'd been there, we'd be going for seconds, right? While, while Daniel's trying to negotiate with those guards. Too often, your life my life, 
It's characterized by compromise. Too often, we, there are, are people in this world who, who see us as indistinct, right? Too many who would say there's no difference between you and everyone else. And too few who would lift us up as an example, who would say this person follows God faithfully. This person is boldly dependent upon him. If Daniel and these guys are the kind of people who get God's favor, then we're in big trouble because we struggle. If these are the kinds of people that get the Lord's delight, we're in big trouble because we wrestle with this. But the good news of the gospel is that God has sent us a Savior. God has sent us a Savior in the midst of this struggle. In the midst of this failure, He has sent us someone whose obedience was a lot better than Daniel's. Someone who was not just given the gift to be wise and to learn about the, the culture of that day, but the one who, who Isaiah said would be given the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, whose delight would be in the fear of the Lord. He sent us Jesus Christ. And I hope that as we look at Him this morning, we are reminded that our favor with God doesn't depend upon our own effort. It doesn't depend upon our ability to perfectly balance what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. But the Christian's favor, Scripture tells us, rests solely in the righteousness of Christ. A righteousness that was, was much more than, than these young men. Because where they obeyed His will in this specific situation, we know that Jesus was obedient in all things. By God's help, these men conquered the temptation of the king's court. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. But on the cross... Rather than receive that blessing, on the cross, rather than receiving God's favor, it says that Jesus was abandoned. That Jesus cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus took our disobedience. He took our failure. He took the punishment that we deserved. The story shows us that Daniel and his friends found favor with the king. But the gospel tells us that through Christ's atonement, through his work on the cross right then, we can be confident that even though we struggle, in this world we are guaranteed favor with the king of kings, with the Lord of lords. Zephaniah, have you guys read this before? The prophet, he says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And that means that for the Christian, this story isn't just some moral, for us, this moral tale for us to follow, right? These guys aren't just some good example for us to try to live up to. But it is a story 
of how God has made a way for scoundrels like us to be treated like saints. Through Christ, he has turned our struggle into his song. And so I want to invite you this morning, you know, whether it's the first time, whether it's the 500th time, I want to invite you this morning to repent. I want to invite you to repent of your assimilation, your lack of distinction. I want to invite you to repent of the way you've let this world define you and come to him. Come to this table and find favor. Trust in him. Trust in him to work in you and to produce a boldness in your life. Come to him and ask that he might put you in places where you can go out and be a blessing. Where you can bless this city without forgetting your name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises to us. And Lord, we acknowledge that so often we have failed when it comes to this test. That you have placed us in a culture where we have the power to witness to your power and your might. And instead, we've huddled amongst ourselves. We've kept our faith a secret or we've sold you out completely. But Lord, I pray now that you would change us. That by your Spirit, you would bring us to Jesus and you would help us to come to you in faith. We pray in his name. Amen.